Drive by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, guten tag, hola. This is Drive by Cinema, <laughs> season four, episode 20. Really? With me is my long suffering co host, Paul. Mm hmm. Who is long suffering? Who was so keen to avoid speaking to me this week, he threw his phone in a river. <laughs> no, my phone was stolen. Whoever stole it recognised that it was completely valueless and abandoned it not 20 yards from where they stole it. That sounds a bit like you just lost it or it fell out of your pocket. No, 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 no. No, let me guess. You'd gone to the metropolis, the big city. You were overawed. You were looking around. Your phone was hanging out of your pocket. And some ne'er-do-well came up and, and swiped it without you realising it. As you were looking at a map or something, or thinking no, about which opera I left to it on my office desk for an hour and a half when I went out to get some food. And it wasn't there when I got back. Oh, so it was an insider job. Insider it job. It was an insider right? risk. It was found oh in the God, kitchen that's... sofa. We have a sofa in the, in the communal kitchen. I had never, never been in the kitchen. But I did look up and down everywhere in the office and found it there. Well, anyway, glad you got it back, Paul. You said it was wet inside, though. Nothing about the story you've told gives any indication of why it should oh, that's be That's different, that's different. I got it back, and then... You washed it? No. Oh, it's dirty. Someone else has had it. Then I went... Then I went hiking, and unfortunately, it got wet up a mountain. Ah, okay, okay. It's, I mean, it's an old phone. I tend to find that it has screen time about five hours max, six hours max, before... I'm down to 10%, which is a lot less than it was when I bought it. But it's four, it's been charged for four years, and I've never turned it off for four years. So I'm fairly happy with how it's lasted. But so I, I went at the start of the mountain with 75%. I thought, well, I'm better, it'll have at least 40%, like Hansel and Gretel, you know, have a trail of electricity on the way back down. I need to limit my use, pathfinding use, whilst I'm up there. And I got to the top, it was 40%. You know, I'd saved 40% for the trek, trek down. And it was windy and kind of moist and misty up there. It stopped responding. I was thinking, what was going on here? So I decided to turn it off and restart in case something could crash. And when it restarted, it said 0% immediately battery. I'd obviously shorted it with the wet and the mist. I was stuck on my arm at the top of a mountain, which is a bit terrifying. Okay. I'm Rick, by the way. I don't think you introduced me. I didn't want you people to think I was... Richard, you know. I didn't want people to think I was called Max since you, you referred to me twice uh, <laughs> during that time. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm actually Rick. Now, Paul, the thing is, if you go up a mountain with your phone hoping to use it as a navigation tool, mm. did you put it in flight mode? No, I cached the maps. Right, but the thing is, if you're far away from a base station, from a cell tower, it pumps the power usage up to try and get a signal. Does it? phones do. They, they try, yeah, the further away they go from a tower, the higher the power output goes. So they can phone home. Well, I know, but it had been without without a signal for about maybe half of the hour beforehand, and it wasn't dropping electricity. Exactly. So all that time, it's on it's on max power. That's why your battery drained like bilio because it was desperately trying to. No, he didn't. He went from thirty five to zero in a matter of seconds, Richard. It went from forty percent to zero in a matter of seconds. I'm just giving you a little piece of tech advice. No, it's very good advice. Next time I'm up a mountain, I will go flying mode and preserve those. If you're off the network, preserve that juice. Conserve battery. Yeah, turn off the cell, the cell connection. Yeah, GPS still works fine. Everybody, by the way, we were supposed to go through GPS, but I don't think we've got time for that anymore. Many of my students don't understand this. <laughs> they just have no comprehension about how GPS doesn't rely on a Wi-Fi, a Wi-Fi signal. It's a very complicated subject. We should really do it one time. So what happened to your phone, Richard? Oh, what happened to my phone? Yeah. My SIM card, I think it was faulty. It's become worn out, off, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Like your bank card. But as a consequence, it kept disconnecting, and I wasn't getting oh, internet. Oh, dear. Not a big deal. I'm usually near Wi-Fi, except I was having to drive up and down the country, about 200 yes. miles each way. I use Waze, which relies on a live connection. I see. And stopped should working. You Google Maps, should you should cache your Google Maps. But the whole point of using Waze is to get traffic data yeah. to route around the traffic jams. I mean, I can still navigate home. I oh. just ended up sitting on the M25 for longer than I ever wanted to. And then because I was getting a bit pissed off with the Shit. whole phone and navigation thing, I 
sort of got lost looking for service stations like I have a pee. And it was, it was one of those oh, junctions. Wow. <laughs> well, it, 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 listen, let me tell you, it was one of those junctions where, you know, you get two very close together. Yeah. And they appear on the sign, one next to, yeah. you know, one above the other. But they're the same sign because they're within a mile or something. And you sometimes look at those and think, well, am I supposed to read this from the top down or from the bottom up? You're supposed <laughs> to read it from the bottom up, Richard. Bottom up, yeah, of course. Also, they you know, an I was hour thinking, on that road, don't they? Yeah, it's not clear which is where the circuit's going. Well done, Rich. I think the services were marked as the top one, yeah. so it should be the second junction. But I was getting quite keen to go to the loop. And I thought, well, if I come off the first one and it's not the I services... I just razz on the roadside, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Why don't you just stop in the hard shoulder and I pee on the hard shoulder like everybody else does? Like, because it's a smart motorway, Paul. They don't have hard shoulders. Oh. They only have those refuge points every few hundred metres or whatever it is, I don't know. Every mile and a half or something. And if you stop in those, they track on camera, don't they? They do, and yeah. And you can be fined for stopping in those for a frivolous purpose. For a was, yeah. But when I came off that junction anyway, I discovered there was no way back onto the motorway immediately. And that I was in like a twisting maze of country oh, roads that seemingly went on for miles in pitch black. So uh, anyway, it must have taken me six hours to get home. It should have taken me oh, three and a half. Thing. Well, I, I arrived here because I'm travelling too. I arrived here and I was desperate for the loop. And uh-huh. so uh, the tracking tracking was till three pm. I arrived at two forty, and I thought, of course, that would be the perfect time to start checking in. Two forty. Am I old fashioned British? You know, do do British people not turn up ten minutes early for things anymore? Or? Well, it depends on the hotel, doesn't it? And she said, "Well, I can I can take your name." She said, "I can give you the checking card, but you can't check in till three o'clock." I was like, "What? Oh, well, come on!" I said, "Is there anybody in the room?" She said, "No." She said, it's just the rules. I thought, well, okay. So then I was really desperate. And you know when you arrive and you, your brain sends an anticipation signal of bathroom to your body? My body was just ready to let rip. You know? Yeah, you're on a downward slope, aren't you? There's no way. And at that point, you start hearing the trinkling of water in your mind. You know, I, I was just... I'd start, uh, she said, you can go wait. She's rather official. She said, go wait in our bar. If they have a bar, Paul, in the current. they must have a public lavatory. No, no. And I went to the bar, and the bar seemed to be a sitting room or, or an old-fashioned hotel lounge with settees and leather armchairs and no toilets that I could see, no public toilet. So then I, I, I noticed there was a bar, not the same establishment, but there was a bar just down the street. So I ran in there, ordered my pie attempt, left my card on the, on the bar for her to swipe. I said, swipe that. And I, I went to the bathroom and unloaded. Ah, in that almost ecstasy of pain, I don't know how you describe it. It's a whole body it's feeling. Just, it's, it? it's, it's fulfilling and, and terrifying. <laughs> I think we've got a decision to make about what film we watch next week, but we'll you come to that at the customary time, won't we? Yeah, we'll have a difficult decision just a bit later on. So let us instead listen to a little bit of music. Okay, Paul. This week, very simple movie name. Getting back to our old style of one-word movies. Oh, hang on, Paul. He's got a gob full of uh, Galaxy Minstrel. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. What is the movie this week? This is the German crime thriller that is called Victoria. Victoria. Like a couple of movies we've done recently, I was wondering at the beginning. I was wondering why this movie was on our list. What reason? I don't know. I think you put it up there. But it became obvious, didn't it, fairly soon in the movie? It did to me. Oh. Okay. This film is a one-take film. Ah! There we go. As in the Japanese zombie movie. And what other one-take movies have we watched? I mean, the famous one that I don't think we've seen or reviewed in the the podcast is 1917, Sam Mendes' World War I. Mm. Uh, adventure. Now, that one is not a one-take movie. It's it's created as if it is a one-take movie. Wow. So there are hidden cuts. Usually they, you know, the, the image is occluded by foreground or a person passes in front of the lens. Really? And usually they do a cut and it's stitched together seamlessly. So it, it seems as if it is one take. I was wondering, you know, why, why do you do that? What is it saying? Obviously, it's bringing you into the action as a, an observer and a participant, isn't it? As the camera person, you are now in the action and you're living it at the same time as the protagonist. 
or the people in the film that you're following. I don't know what kind of authenticity it's heading for. I mean, it's easy with music, isn't it? When we talk about hippie authenticity, you know, it's all about depth and sort of emotive connection, isn't it? When we talk, we talk about punk authenticity, it, it's all about what? It's all about sort of relevance and immediacy, isn't it? But in terms of film, I don't know how you, you address the different cultures of authenticity here. When you do it, you throw away some of the traditional vocabulary of filmmaking. A lot of the traditional uh, vocabulary. Is it called structuralism, the filmmaking school? But, you know, the simple example is you see a shot of a man and maybe you get a close-up of his face and perhaps he's got an upset look in his face, but mm. we don't know why he's upset. And now we cut to, like, see an apple, mm-hmm. a close-up of an apple. And then we cut again and we, we cut back to the guy and we see his face, and maybe now he's licking his lips. So now in those simple three shots, you have told something about the interior, the, the interior emotions of this one guy in mm. this little tiny film, right? And you've done it using cuts. Whereas if you imagine that same thing on a stage, say, on a play, you'd just be seeing a man in a chair on a table. Maybe an apple is on the table, but there could be all kinds of other props on, on stage, right? Well, the dialogue would have to work on the stage, wouldn't it? Absolutely. You'd have to say to the audience that you want an apple or you're hungry. Whereas in film, you can draw attention to the apple and to the man. and Through closer. His... Exactly. And I think that's one of, the ways, one of the ways we're used to film telling stories. So when you do a one-shot where you cannot cut and focus in on things, I guess we focus on things in normal life, don't we, when you're going around living your life. Sometimes you're looking over here, sometimes you're looking over there. The camera can do something a bit similar. It can yeah. point in a certain direction or it can linger in a certain way and go in physically close to somebody. And I mean, the famous one shot is Robert Altman's shortcuts. It's an eight-minute eight minute intro, isn't it? I know. You, you do mention this every time we do this. Yeah. And I'm sure impressive enough, but we're talking here about movies that, that but it's an intro. are... It's an intro. You know, It's not meant to be drawing you into the story at that point. Have you abandoned the technique within, sure. within eight minutes? So, uh, 1917, I mean, it's very brave to do this, but why? what authenticity are they heading for? That I don't know. It's ironic we should be talking about this, because in, in the last couple of episodes, I've mentioned how almost every movie ends in a montage, because yeah. there's always a time jump. You're always compressing time in some way. But these one-take movies, of course, are the example where you never do a montage because you never jump out of time. You're always minute by minute, one on one. And that was true in 1917, the World War I movie, although it's not totally true because he does get knocked unconscious, spoiler alert, about three quarters of the way through the film. Hours pass, you know, because it's dark when he comes around. So we as the audience experience that skip as well. But here in Victoria, this is a complete entire film in one take. And what is more... They didn't fake it. This is done Whoa. for real. This is yes. actually real time. It's done entirely in real time. That cuts down the actors' bills, doesn't it, hey? I don't know. If they're running out of there in two hours. Imagine the rehearsal. We may pick up on the things, the problems this caused. I want you to, first of all, imagine... I didn't know a single shot, I'm sorry. I don't know how you didn't, Paul. Did it not leap out at you? Did you not, after a while, it go... It crossed my mind about three times, and I thought, wait a minute. I just want you to think about how you film this. This was filmed in Berlin. Mm. I, I guess they did it at a very similar time because they have to, wouldn't they? It takes place in the film from 4am, or roughly, and it's two hours long, so it ends sort of sometimes slightly longer than two hours. It ends after 6am. Mm. And it's an unbroken shot, and during it they visit completely different locations in Berlin. It starts in one area and it winds up in a completely different place, doesn't it? So I just want you to think for a moment about the logistics of trying to film this. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could argue that when actors go on stage and do a play, they're doing a similar thing. Right? Yeah. They've got the entire performance memorised. They know the lines. They know what marks to hit and stuff. They come on, they do their piece. They do it night after night. So in some senses, it's maybe... Not such a big deal, but I don't know. You've also got the technicality of the camera and the sound recording and everything else that's going on and getting the lighting right. It seems amazing to me. And it's all the more amazing because they don't compromise, as far as I can see, much about their artistic vision. So we start off in the opening scene is an interior in a techno nightclub, isn't it? Somewhere in a basement club in Berlin. And we are watching our main protagonist, who's called Victoria, dancing 
to some very powerful strobes in the dry ice. What do you call the artificial uh, fog they put in night? Dry ice, I think. I mean, techno doesn't really exist in this kind of mould in the UK anymore, does it? Does it not? You don't think there are techno clubs like this? I mean, there must be some niche ones, but it's still a prominent part of the club scene in Germany and in Berlin, isn't it, techno? I don't honestly know, but Mm. I imagine so, yeah. It was really good music, anyway. There's that one club that everybody wants to get into in Berlin. The most fashionable club in Europe. And uh, that is very techno-focused, I think. And at risk of completely mispronouncing it, it is... No, please, please do. Berkheim. Right, Berkheim. 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 Oh, Berkheim. Yes. And that is, like, the the pinnacle. I was going to say epitome, but it's epitome. The epitome of the epitome of uh, sort of techno nightclubs, I think. You have to be dressed in exactly the right amount of black leather to get in there, kind of thing. So this <laughs> underground club these our, our protagonists went to, or she went to, is... I mean, it's heavy techno, isn't it? I didn't think it was that heavy. Oh, okay. We can pop the track on the drive-by cinema playlist oh. on Spotify, and people can judge for themselves whether it's heavy or not. But I, I quite enjoyed it. Now, she's trying to get off with the barman, I think, at the club. Yeah. She's certainly a bit flirty with him. He's not really interested in having none of it. I guess barmen get that all the time. You get a lot of it, don't they? Or is he oblivious? Because, I mean, it is a fact, He spots isn't it, it he ignores it, he gets a lot of it, I imagine. Was my but it, it is true that, that men routinely fail to see when women are flirting with them. Is that not true? Mm-hmm. Certainly true of me. Certainly. When they see it, are they at risk of being called creeps when they reciprocate? I don't think that's troubled me for long, you know. I mean, well. <laughs> I'm thinking way back to when I was younger, right? Right. Before Me Too and everything. No, 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 no. I, I think it existed before Me Too, this. There's a prerogative that a man could go and chat a, a lady up, yeah? If she was drinking a half pint of lager or a lady's spritzer, right? That was the old rules. <laughs> a man could proactively go and go. But what a man couldn't do is that when anyone approached him is assume that it was... It was flirtation of any kind, even if it was flirtation. So your contention here is the men... There was a lady's character to be defended originally, wasn't there? Do you remember 30, 40 years ago? A lady's character could not be besmirched. You could not assume she had romantic or sexual motives, because if she didn't, that would be a terrible assault on her character, wouldn't it? So you're saying that men knew they were being flirted with, but they had to not act on it out of sense of propriety? No, I don't know. I was too young at the time. I mean, not if it was in a factory and it was in the photocopy room. Then no, you got it, wouldn't you, I guess. But my experience, though, is that men only realise they've been flirted with, like, days, months or years after the event. And they go, oh, (laughs) what was I doing? Did I get a number? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she she was definitely definitely flirting with him, without a doubt. She gets a shot, doesn't she, I think, and Mm. knocks it down. She's a bit short of money, doesn't she? It's like she's out of change or something. So it's time to go home, Kansas. She gets a double vodka because she works in a cafe. She's going to have to go and open the cafe. It's 4am. I don't know how long she's been out. This is a typical European kind of clubbing thing, isn't it? Where they go out on a work night, stay up all night. It's kind of her plan, I think. Yeah. She's just arrived in Berlin. She's only been there for, what, three weeks, three months? Three months? Yeah, yeah. Because she's Spanish, isn't she, Victoria? She don't speak the German. She only speaks the Spanish and a bit of the English. I think that's incredibly brave, by the way, to go to a different country, to work, to live, not know the language. By the way, I'm obviously including you in this, Paul, because I think you've done the same thing. I think it's admirably brave. It's not brave, Richard. Oh, right. it's, it's good fun. It makes boring places interesting if you don't speak the language, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I guess she... So, it casts an air of mystery, then. doesn't it? If you don't understand things, things are mysterious. So how did you watch this film, Paul? Did you watch this with subtitles? I watched it in German, yes, with the English subtitles, which sometimes had German subtitles on top of them and sometimes got in the way of each other. So it's quite so, I got it free I, on I got it free on what's it called? On YouTube. I spotted a little trick here. If you type in the name of the movie and Spanish subtitles, some Spaniard has been putting these things up <laughs> on YouTube and the algorithm doesn't detect them. So provided you're happy to watch them with Spanish subtitles, but we had the original English subtitles underneath them. But it's all still in German, you see. So there you go. Paul, money-saving tips. There I'll, we go. I'll give Martin Lewis Psycho Gorman also, by the way. The last <laughs> two, I've done this way. I watched this movie without subtitles. Well done. Because, I mean, Richard knows some German, don't you? 
I know enough German to get myself into trouble. I didn't find it very easy to follow any of the German in this film. Okay. They spoke pretty quickly, and I guess it's street German. Well, and Germans, I only find out now on the YouTube Learn German channels that German's a very dialectal language. I wasn't yeah. aware of this. I, I think that's true. I experienced this film very much the same way as Victoria did, in the sense that... <laughs> what the fuck is going I mean, on? I understood the English that they were speaking when uh, they were speaking right. English. Not all of the German was translated, though. Right, so you had a similar experience, but mine was complete total. So in okay. a sense, for me, because it's a one-cut movie, because we are going to follow Victoria, I think almost every frame in this movie, and because I only understood what Victoria understands, I experienced this whole thing like Victoria did. It was very much me with her for the entire evening. I found that a very interesting experience. She's had it at the nightclub. She's not got up with the barman. She goes to the cloakroom and gets her coat, doesn't she? She's out on her own as well, because mm-hmm. she's just on her way to work, I suppose. But as she's doing that, some drunk guys, about four of them, are being thrown out of the club, I think. They are, yeah. Or being denied entry, I'm not quite sure which. They're asking her about some stuff, aren't they? Now, Victoria has this look with her. She has this look that I've only ever seen when I used to go clubbing in the early 90s, which is, I'm a cool trick, and I'm going to smile in a really friendly way, but, but only for so long that it doesn't interfere with my cultic identity. Oh, but that's the MDMA, isn't it? Yeah. It could also be not speaking the language, but she's doing the I don't speak the smile language too. Kind of thing. <laughs> so she's doing the MDMA smile, the club smile. And she's trying to be nice. Maybe uh, you know, maybe she's trying to pacify them with the I don't speak smile, but she, then she stops it because she realises that she's a clubber after all. You see. Clubs can't be that friendly, can they? I've noticed a bit of a trend on YouTube. I say it's a trend. Maybe... The algorithm was just pumping these things at me for some reason. I don't know why. Ever since about Halloween time, mm-hmm. there's been a sort of spate of videos where some guy just wanders down the streets of a busy city and catches pictures of the nightlife, which in this country is a load of guys and girls wearing T-shirts and really short dresses and stuff, going to kebab shops and being sick and stuff. <laughs> and in other countries, represents their own cultural highlights. One thing I noticed, though, there's several in, like, uh, Seoul in Korea, right? Mm-hmm. He went round to the nightlife districts in there. Most of the clubs and bars there seem to be like shop fronts with windows, glass windows and stuff. And yeah. you can hear exactly what music is going on in all of them as you walk down the street. It's almost like you could go shopping for your music tastes. But that's not how a lot of clubs are, well, certainly in in this area of Berlin and not in the UK. In the UK, most nightclubs are, like, tucked away, aren't they? Like, in basements or upstairs somewhere. You can't wander along the street, and usually, and hear what music is going on in a lot no, of No, there's no nightclub zone. No. No, no. She emerges into, like, this post-industrial sort of wasteland somewhere in Berlin. There's, there's not much around, in other words. And you certainly can't really tell. There's a nightclub just downstairs. She gets her bike. Her plan was to cycle home, get an hour's sleep, and then go and open the cafe, wasn't it? But the guys that we'd seen getting chucked out show up, don't they? The one guy who... Son. Son. Sonny. Son, yeah. Sonny, yeah. Sonny's a bad name for an English show. He is... All over him. Like a rash. He's, he's the most charming of them, four of them, isn't he? Yeah, he's a rough diamond, isn't he, kind of thing. You mean to say, oh, a rough diamond, the geezer. Geezer, he's a geezer, isn't he? He's smooth as well. He also seems to be much older than the others, but maybe Well, all just... mid-twenties, apparently, when the police identify them later, but I would say he looks at least 45. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, got a line, he's got a thicker line forehead than I have, so... He's lived a life, that's certainly true. But he offers to give her a lift, doesn't he? But obviously, they seem to all be drunk. She introduces herself, though, as Victoria, and she's saying, they're all standing around this car claiming it's their car, and she's saying, it's I don't think that's your car. I think, isn't it? Was it? I thought it was like a classic car, wasn't it? Oh, a classic, I don't know. It's, it's a nice car anyway, isn't it? As they're sort of hanging around this car, the owner apparently comes out wherever he is and shouts at them to fuck off, which they do. So they start walking, and Victoria's explaining she's from Madrid, as you mentioned. Sonny is saying that one of these guys, it's their birthday, and they're out celebrating. And he explains the names. It's Boxer. Boxer, yeah, who's a shaven-headed kind of guy who's had a criminal record. Although how they all four haven't, have, haven't had a criminal record is beyond me. Blinker. Blinker, yeah. Blinker's kind of compass mentis. Foot is the guy who's off his head, isn't it? Foos, yeah. Yeah. He's the birthday boy. He's the birthday boy. 
he's getting properly wasted, isn't he? Well, he is. Yeah, he's beyond. He's gone above and beyond in the juicy, in the drunken duty. If you were Victoria, how scared would you be of four random guys like this? Even if, I mean, Sonny putting her at ease, that would make me a little bit more scared. Like, why is he being so disarming in his charm? It seems sketch, doesn't it? I think I would be scared as a man. As a man, yeah. They're going to beat me I don't have an experience that that a woman has, but my, my projection of that is that it must be doubly scary for a woman. But on the other hand, I don't know. I mean, it, it is also true that when you go away to a different country, you have a different attitude to a lot of these things, don't you? Yeah. You may be, not, first of all, not completely tuned in to the danger signals of the local culture. You're right. You are, but also, yes. I think it. I think people are just a bit more f- foolhardy when they go yeah. to different places. Um, but, and maybe there are other reasons why Victoria might feel this way, but we'll get to that, won't we? They're inviting her to go for another drink, aren't they? One drink, one more drink. Sonny encourages her to stop off at a convenience stop. He says he knows the shop. owner, yeah. He's a Middle Eastern man. It's what we in this country would call an off-licence. Off-licence. He wants some booze, doesn't he? And they go in and they find the shopkeeper is, like, asleep at the counter. So Sonny encourages her to help him swag a few bottles of beer on the pretense that he'll pay the owner back tomorrow, which <laughs> she goes a long way. Only to realise when she got out the door that she's stolen beer for him. She tries to return it, they all say no, which she quickly accedes to. They all start drinking. Beck's beer, I mean, why choose Beck Beck's, when yeah. you could have chosen anything else in that fridge? Oh, I quite like a Beck's, but oh. you're, not a fan, you're not a fan of Beck's? No, there goes our Beck sponsorship. So wheaty. Oh. All German beer is very wheaty, isn't it? I've noticed. First, the birthday boy, he gets a miniature. He gives her, like, a miniature spirit. He does. You see, this is my second kind of pang of fear. It's like, oh, my God, (laughs) it's spiked. (laughs) But he wasn't. Well, it might have have had a seal on the top if he's giving her a miniature, mightn't it? They uh, start having a beer. They're goofing around that side. A couple of, like, aggro guys approach. Oh, I've heard about that, yeah. So at this point, my fears are allayed. It just seems that Sonny's a nice guy that wants to get into a pan. So it's, everything's okay. Or it was in my mind, at least. The birthday guy asks for a little dance with Victoria, and he has like a slow dance on the street with her. Vic is ins- insisting that she's got to go and open the cafe. But they invite her to their private roof. They've got a rooftop spot. Now, she's heard lots. Like She's heard that he knows the owner of the, uh, the all-night store. She's heard that he's got a car kind of thing. She's heard quite a lot of stories off him. So she's like, oh, yeah, all right, yeah, your rooftop apartment. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> and she's got this nice way of mucking them all, which, again, is like out-of-towner trying to be friendly but not quite daring to be as forthright as they want to be kind of stuff. So, so I thought all the acting was quite well observed here. They're trying to share the ride on the bike, aren't they? I think she yeah. tries to give Sonny a backy, and then she doesn't manage it because he's probably quite heavy. So they swap, and he gives her a backy on the bike. The others jog along, and they come to... And again, think about this, Paul. Think about how they filmed this in one take, right? <laughs> I don't know it's it's a remarkable achievement. And it's ten past four in the morning. It's pitch black. So they arrive at a low-rise residential block. They park the bike. They start going up the stairs. But she gets in the lift, doesn't she, with fuss and blinker. At this point, actually, one of the rare moments where we get non-diegetic music... Because they cut the dialogue and they play well, music. Well spotted. But the image is still an, a single uncut scene and they get out of the lift. They wind up on the top landing of this residential apartment block and they open the hatch in the roof and pull some ladders down so that they can climb up to the roof where they've get got stone. some ga- garden chairs up there, don't they? And a little and fire pit and stuff. They have a conversation, don't they? This is where some of the exposition about the characters comes from. We learn that... Boxer has been serving time in prison, has been released. They tell a story about Fuss stealing a truck when he was 11 years old, driving it to Poland. (laughs) You got on the TV, yeah. And Blinker had stolen a pizza scooter. Blinker can steal anything, you can steal anything, can't he? Boxer is the only one who hurt a guy. But he's at pains to say that he's not a bad guy, he just did a bad thing. Oh, Blinker stole the pizza scooter, but only wanted it for the pizza and not for the scooter, is that right? Victoria's listening to this and at one point she goes and looks over the edge of the roof. She walks to the edge and all the guys like freak out, like don't jump kind of thing. But she sits on the edge fearless. I think we're learning that Victoria is kind of fearless, aren't we? Mm. Or she's on something. She's certainly on a couple of things by now. 
She points down because she can see her cafe now from this roof. She said, you know, she needs a couple of hours of sleep. So she bids them all farewell. But Sonna offers to give her a lift on the bike to the cafe and, you know, make sure she gets there safely and stuff. So he's kind of making a move, isn't pretext, he? Pretext for trying it on, yeah. 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 And in the lift on the way down, he tells her that in Germany it's forbidden to speak in the elevator. <laughs> we get to their cafe after a short trip. Again, we see this all on screen uncut. And they go for an awkward goodbye, a kiss on the cheek kind of thing. But then she thinks twice and she invites him into the cafe for a drink, you know. He says he doesn't drink coffee, only cacao. Presumably that's hot chocolate, isn't it? Mm. But he likes it cold and double strength, which, I don't know, never heard that before, but there we go, that's what he wants. So they go in and they're chatting. Vic's telling him she gets four euro an hour, sometimes tips. It's not very much, is it? He sees a piano in the cafe, Sonna, and he says that he's a professional piano player. He says, I think he says he's related to Mozart. <laughs> After all he said. So, I mean, she's taking all this with an incredible pinch of salt. She says, oh, go on, play it for me. And so he tinkles away, doesn't he? Nothing. He just taps a few notes out. He says, yeah, I, I know I'm good. She says that she thinks she's falling in love with him right now, which is... I guess a movie moment. And he, I think he says the same, cringe. But, but then she says that she can play the piano. And he ribs her about it for a bit. And she gives in. Eventually she sits down and she plays a stunning, like, virtuoso piece, doesn't she? From memory as well, with no sheet music. That's right. Yeah. Which is incredibly moving. Even as watching a movie about a crazy night out in Berlin, I wasn't expecting to be this moved by a classical piece. And it clearly affects Sonner as well, who's completely captivated by it. So it's something by Liszt, I don't quite know what or who, but she, I mean, she plays it, well, whoever played it for it plays it really well. It's the Mephisto Waltz, Paul. Oh, it must have been her that was actually playing, wasn't it, if it was single shot? No, that's movie magic. Oh. She's sitting at the piano, but the there's a proper pianist playing somewhere. I see. They turn around to look at him and then she's moved and be replaced with somebody else. Okay. Right, well... I mean, no, I mean, they could pipe it in, couldn't they? She's not necessarily... Oh, with you, with you, with you. Out. Okay, they could just yeah. overdub it, really. She was miming playing the piano, but she wasn't... The actress is not a virtuoso, like, grade oh, nine or whatever. That would be the best. <laughs> so we had a nice little intimate break there from what's, about, what's happened before, which is drunkenness and debauchery, and what's about to happen pretty soon so I, I mean, was it necessary to insert this nice little piece I, cementing I think their it's really important in fact I'd say this moment in the film is pivotal. really cemented it for me I thought it was pivotal because yeah. it tells you two things first of all through it we get into Vic's backstory which was that she spent years and years of her life in a conservatory I was just a grandma she said what she meant was yeah. she lived like an old person she had no joy there was no none of the not the joys of spring about her life as a young person. She just worked and studied the piano. By conservatory, I don't think she means a greenhouse that's stuck on the back of a semi-detached house. I think it's some kind of school, isn't it, for music? It is, yeah. I mean, to do that, to devote yourself to music and become successful, it's not a waste at all, is it? It's what you want to do. But to do that and to be told you're not good enough and to fail, it must be doubly paining, mustn't it? To realise you could have just kicked a football around and smoked some dope with the rest of the kids and be where you are today, serving in a cafe. She said she spent 16 and a half years practising every day for seven hours, which is the maximum you can practise without damaging yourself. She had no real friends, and it wasn't her dream anymore. Yeah, and she was told... 16 and a half... Years, yeah. For seven so she must have started when she was like three or something. Seven hours a day? That's what she said. Wow. And she was told that 90% of the students there are wasting their time because they'll never amount to anything. True. The other important thing about this is... You learn something about Sonna's character, don't you? He's not simply getting drunk and getting stoned on a rooftop. He actually appreciates what she's just done. He's incredibly moved by it. He or says, does he just want to get into her pants and therefore is appreciative? Because it's the right thing. You could it's be cynical right that way. Play. I would be. Like, I if felt, I was alone in Berlin in the middle of the night, I would be cynical about that, yeah. But I felt as moved as he was about it, because I wasn't expecting her to do it. I felt uh, empathy with with him at that point. For Maybe he took an agnostic time. attitude like agnostics do. I'll, I'll believe <laughs> in both just in case. I'll appreciate this just in case I wake up tomorrow in bed with her. And then maybe those actions will have turned into feelings and I'll probably genuinely feel what I'm feeling now kind of thing. They do that, don't they? They kind of hedge their emotions, don't they? Sure. Look, he's not... He's a complicated character. Mm. I think he's well wrong. He's wise, isn't he? He's a wise guy. 
Yeah, and he is a wise guy in lots of ways. The other thing, of course, is we now perhaps begin to understand why Victoria is the way she is, or why she was never going to make it as a concert pianist. You know, she's headstrong, wild child, brave. Yeah. Sort of. She's transvision vamp, isn't she? She's not. She's but not. she's also in rebellion, isn't she? She's come out of this oppressive schooling Correct. situation. And, she has become know, very, very quite contrary. Yeah, yeah. She's in a foreign city. She's yeah, That's why she's doomed. there. She's reacting against stuff, isn't she? She's just having fun. Yeah. Forced inexorably on the, on, the, on the treadmill of her life to, to this destination. So I like that. There was a sense of inevitability and fate about this, about this film. This film could have gone two ways, and this, again, is another important, pivotal reason for this scene, right? Because there's a version of this film where the two of them make love, we see the rest of their night play out as two lovers, right? In I guess it was, this would be some kind of French situationist kind of thing, wouldn't it? Mm. But instead what happens is we're going to start like a hard-bitten crime drama because Sonna gets a phone call. Obviously, it's quite an urgent, serious call, and he looks a bit sort of sad and upset about it all. He says he has to go and do Boxer a favour, do some work. But he wants to see her again, obviously. Uh, and whilst he's explaining this, Boxer is there at the cafe window, knocking on the window. Because obviously they all saw where, where the, she was pointing to when she said she was working in the cafe. Sonic goes outside, he has an intense discussion with Boxer that we're not really party to, and I wouldn't have understood anyway. Maybe you saw subtitles, I don't know. Some of it, yeah. She watches as Boxer runs over to a car and kicks it, and the alarms go off. Sonna pops his head in the door and says these goodbyes, but they've got to go and do something. So she watches them sort of run off and do all this stuff. She goes back to the cafe counter, getting ready for the day, I guess, going to open the cafe. She's got a toothbrush and a <laughs> tube of toothpaste. She's done those before, yeah? Yeah, exactly, yeah. She starts brushing her teeth, lost in thought about it all. But before she's finished and spat it out, they come back into the cafe, and the birthday boy, Foose, is really drunk, and he's throwing up. And they put him in a chair and they ask her for water and stuff. And Boxer is furious. And they're having an intense argument in German, aren't they? Which, again, you, maybe you know more about. Well, but, how much you get? You know, they, they need to go and Boxer owes. Boxer in prison. He's owing his protector, the head honcho in prison, for his protection services. He has to do one last job for him worth $10,000 to the head honcho. And they can take the rest of the money. Unfortunately, the guy has demanded that the four of them turn up, and now with with Foots falling unconscious, that can no longer that condition can no longer be met. Boxer kind of pushes Son to ask Victoria to come along with them, and ah, and Son he asks her really apologetically, doesn't he? Mm, very he says she won't be implicated in anything. She's just going to be driving them. <laughs> so she does. They get in this car, which clearly Boxer has just stolen, effectively. Mm. She starts driving and Boxer is directing. Gerada Aus, it's the bit of German that I did recognise, I means straight on. And it's a tense drive. There's a lot of chat in German that I didn't hear, but Boxer's clearly really wound up. They arrive at a basement car park entrance ramp and the roll door rises up and Vic drives in and there's a guy with a, a shotgun directing them and they turn a corner into this car park and see five or six other heavies standing around this sort of black limousine. And Andy, the boss, steps out, doesn't he? The three of them get out. Vic stays in the driver's seat. The boss hands them all a black bin liner with handguns in. Boxer takes one, Sonna takes one, Blinker takes one. I think the boss tells them to get the, the girl out of the car, doesn't he? And mm-hmm. so she has to join them. And he leads them to another bit of the car park where they've got a chair sat up. I don't, don't know why. He starts giving them instructions. And it's obvious that our crew don't really like the instructions they're being given. So he tells him to rob $50,000 that morning, like now, in the next half an hour, from the local bank. Somebody's going to be bringing some money in into one of the safety deposit boxes early on, and they've just got to take it, leave 10000 for him, and the rest is theirs to split as they wish. This is the bit where I'm most... Well, not, I'm not confused, but I'm having to follow along like Vic is, because mm. I can't hear all this German exchange. What I see is them being given these guns, being led through to this other place with a chair. They're told to practice practice the robbery. Yeah, I didn't know that they were being told that. I just see them practicing a robbery, which is very weird, right? Because they all jump out of the car with balaclavas on, run over, point their guns at nobody. (laughs) Well, there's a plan on the floor, you see. So they're given a brief floor plan, you know, things on the floor to indicate where people, where the important people in the bank will be sitting. 
I see. Finally, they're given some sort of stimulant or relaxant to make themselves. It must more. be cocaine, right? There must be. Or it's, like, it's a mixture of cocaine and something else. I think I, I remember all the subtitles to make them more alert and aggressive. Obviously, not very good for your heart. Clearly, as cocaine isn't, especially when you're mixing it with stuff. But Vic does it too. She's given some. Yeah, stuff. and then she's she's like, yeah, I want to go along with it. She's compass mentis. She ain't panicking at all. As they're heading towards the bank to do the robbery, it's Blinker that suddenly has. Either a heart attack or a panic attack, it turns out to be the latter. He has a violent drug reaction, I think. I mean, he may be having a panic attack, but I'm certain it's brought on by a sort of stimulant psychosis. Mm. And his heart must be sort of palpitating as well. They stop the car, don't they? Get him out of the car and calm him down, basically. And they're all freaked out. Eventually, Blinker recovers enough to get back in. Sonna wants to take Vic back to the cafe. But she, as you say, she insists she's going to go through it with him. Yeah. They drive on, and Boxer directs them to the bank, as you say. It's a very sure. anonymous-looking office building, isn't it? It's not like a high street bank. It's like a, it's like the back back office almost. I think they all get out. And they tell her to turn the car around, which she starts doing. A worker is arriving at this office building, and a security guard is opening the door, letting them in. And as that happens, the three of them run in, don't they? Draw the guns. And Vic turns the car around in their absence. I love this dead silence. This two minutes of dead silence is really well. I, I, it's a really valuable part of the movie. It's kind of like, yeah. you just feel just the unknowns building here. Like, are they going to come out? Where's she going to drive them to? What are they going to do afterwards? Kind of stuff. And the silence really helps build that, I think. And as she's sitting there in the car, the she engine gutters up. and dies. I mean, she and messes the thing up is, somehow. Honey. The thing is, she doesn't have a key. Boxer had hotwired this car. Ah, right. That's why she can't get it started. That's right. So she's sitting there in a car that doesn't have a hot wire. out, and she can't hotwire it. Very tense, and she struggles for a bit, and you see her sort of now getting she out and looking around panicking. all the yeah. yeah, And again, brilliantly acted. Just like... very good, and so tense. They emerge and all running out, and she's saying, "You know, car won't start," kind of thing. Boxer, to his credit, immediately restarts. Oh, it right. He, he nails it pretty quickly. That panic. But she's is not over. calm anymore, is she? Now she's just. She's kind of freaked out. She's hopped out. up on, on, on amphetamines and, and cocaine. She just, she's, she's not paying attention. She's driving right She drives away really quickly, and they're all going, drive slow, drive slow, drive slow. Now, here's an interesting thing, right? There's a bit of panic here, isn't it, where she goes the wrong way. Yeah. They tell her to go back and stop, then drive again and turn right, and they're directing her. So here's a really interesting thing. Again, remember this is one take, Paul. The actors are doing this. She has to drive the car. This is the third time they've run through this. They did three takes of this movie. And only the third one did they get everything right. But on this occasion, on this third take, the actor playing Victoria, she drove the wrong way. (laughs) She drives past the turn. They had to improvise it. What's worse is they were coming up on an area where some of the crew were standing on the side of the road sound people or something and the difficulty was that if the camera caught sight of them they would ruin the entire piece right yeah because there would be a bit in that they couldn't remove so the cameraman had to adjust the camera to make it look like in a panic we're looking down below the dashboard this is where everyone is shouting at this point and that is because during these sequences the director is in the back of the car in the boot and he'd recognised they'd gone the wrong way. And he was also shouting, you know, stop, turn around. They had to edit the audio out later to remove him from the audio. Wow. But all that panic is real. So she does stop. She reverses or whatever, turns around. She takes the, the correct turning. And they sort of rescued the film. <laughs> Brilliant. So they wind up stopping in an industrial area down this sort of little road. Not far from where they started. Because true, true. where did they decide to go after they've managed to steal $50,000? Back down the club they got thrown out from. They've got a pack of money, haven't they, in a small carrier bag? Hell yeah. Quite, yeah. quite a compact, isn't it, for 50000 whatever it is. Is it euros? It must be euros, right? Mm-hmm. They're all very high, though, aren't they? And they're all very pleased that they've got away with it. They own coke and adrenaline, I guess. And Blinker wants to get drunk, so they go down into the club that they, we started in. Again, we get a moment where they change the music out to... This time it's piano music, actually, we're hearing, but we're seeing them in a techno club, and they're going apeshit, aren't they? Son is, son is chipping $200 here and there. She's snogging Sonna. Yeah. Boxer and Blinker get their sh- shirts off first. In fact, they get completely naked, don't they? That's when they get thrown out again, yeah. Yeah, security get accosts them and 
$200 will not buy you that kind of privilege, unfortunately. <laughs> so now that they're getting thrown out of the club and dawn has dawned, it's becoming light, Victoria suggests going back onto the roof. She suddenly has this realisation that Foos is still in the car. <laughs> now, I don't remember this, but apparently they put him in the boot of that car. Right. I don't think we really see them do it, but I think it's implied. Because, yeah, we were watching Victoria brush her teeth at the time, I think. So they go back to where they left the car, but as they round the corner, police have already surrounded that car. Mm-hmm. And presumably, Fuss is in there, they've found him. They all sober up very fast, don't they? And they go to their rooftop hideout. But they think that they're being followed along the way. And they start hustling, running through the streets. But it's like 6am, so they're going to be pretty... Coming up on 6am, so it's going to be very obvious, isn't it, that they're running through the streets. And planes car close and driving past them, as it turns out. Yeah, cars start pulling up on them, they start running... Shots start being fired, so the German police are pulling up their, their own firearms and shooting. Blinker catches a bullet and falls over, and Boxer and Sonner return fire with their own guns. They wind up in this kind of like one of those green spaces you get between residential buildings, don't they, in parks and stuff. Community garden. Boxer ends up being shot dead and hands the bag to Sonner and runs at the police, effectively, and gets shot dead. And uh, Sonner and Victoria, they're sort of using that distraction to make their way to a a low-rise building. I don't think it's theirs, I'm not sure. It's not theirs now. Random. Someone is coming down the stairs. Sonna tells them to go back up at gunpoint and gets into their flat. They notice that the couple have got a baby and, of course, they're distraught. This armed couple, this armed couple's son and Victoria have taken them hostage with their child there. And they're seeing armed police come outside the, the building, sort of ready for a kind of siege, aren't they? Vic's tra- desperately trying to think what they can do. She goes to the window and sees this. So she suddenly, she gets from the wardrobe of this couple, she gets like a tracksuit, jogging pants and a, a top, puts it on over her clothes, gives similarly another tracksuit to Sonna from the guy. And says, we're taking your baby. And of course, there's grief and horror from the, from the family. But Victoria's really hard-headed at this point and very, very headstrong. She's like, either they can let them take the baby or the baby's going to come to harm, isn't it? She says, don't worry, we'll leave it in the shop across the road. You can see it from here. This plan works, doesn't it? Yes. They, they pop the money in the baby carrier. Mm-hmm. They go downstairs. They meet, like, GSG9 guys or SWAT police, whatever they're called in Germany. Coming up the stairs, who say, basically usher them out of the building as if they're innocent bystanders. They make it. They make it across the road, past the cordon. They leave the baby in the shop. They do, do that and hail a cab straight away and jump in it and go, go across town. Now, problem, like, they can't return to where they're headed. I think they make a silly mistake, which is to go to a registered hotel. They decide to go to the West Inn, which is like one of the best hotels you can go to, or the best sort of brand hotels you can go to. And then they realise, shit, we've not got passports. Somehow, Victoria manages to get them in. I don't know how, bribe presumably. Well, she takes a bag of money, doesn't she? So presumably she just gives reception enough money that they don't care. Do you need a passport to check in? At the West Inn or at the holiday, you know, any kind of, like, chain, you definitely need a passport. What if you're a German person in Germany? Well, she's Spanish, isn't she? What about freedom of movement? What about the European Union? I don't know. That's got nothing to do with private establishments and their right to demand a passport. If you Maybe. Okay. It may have, in, in terms of enshrined law, but I don't think there's necessarily any limitation on what businesses can ask for in terms of identification if you're going to use their property for the time. Now, she is off at reception arranging a room. Actually, this is the only time when we're not directly following her, the oh. camera, I suppose. We actually linger with Sonna, don't we, as he's sitting in reception. And it's obvious that he's guarding himself. Now, funnily enough, I recently saw like a meme going around which had a little diagram of a human body and it was pointing to somewhere around your kidney or just to your left of your liver, down in that area of your abdomen. Yeah. It had a little X there and it said... Anyone shot here in movies must pretend that they're okay, but later reveal <laughs> that they've been shot with copious amounts of blood. I mean, if it's not your lungs, you're probably, or your heart, you're probably going to be okay. You think? Well, if, if you bleed internally. Oh, I mean, well, he, how much was he bleeding, though? Not that much, was he? Well, initially he's in shock, isn't he? For the most part, he's been, like, upright, and he's been walking around. He's probably in shock. Probably most of his blood is pooled in his... In his legs, kind of thing. Oh. But when she gets him in the hotel, she lies him down, 
He's cold because he's losing blood. She puts the covers over him, lies him down. He's ripped an artery, hasn't he? I think he basically bleeds out at that point, doesn't he? Because the wound is at that level, isn't it? And so he's going to bleed copiously. Here we've got Victoria, you know, she wants to take to the hospital. He says no, and she doesn't take him to the hospital. I think she was actually about to, but things move too quickly. Oh, it moves too quickly. She turned on the TV to cheer him up and they see the live news and they see a coffin being taken away from the, the scene of the shooting. One dead, one seriously injured. Doesn't include the guy in the boots, I don't think. <laughs> he tells her to take the money and go back to Spain. Nobody knows that you're involved. And she calls for an ambulance. Actually, calls, she gets reception to call for an ambulance, doesn't she? And then she tries desperately to keep him awake, keep him conscious. But he passes out, dies in front of her, and she's heartbroken. And this is pretty devastating. And she spends far too long, like, crying that she's lost him. And then she recovers herself. Again, this is all obviously in real time. She spots the bag of money, and she leaves She leaves the suite as the phone starts ringing and walks out of the hotel foyer. And again, this is the first time really now that the camera leaves her, and we just stop outside the hotel and watch, watch her walk away, presumably, and get away with it. But that is the end of a two hour and a bit, two hour 16 or something, single take that has gone through lots of different areas of Berlin. And it's got to be a masterpiece of filmmaking. I don't know, I don't know how you arrange to do that in a, in a city. We saw the vampire movie, which was a single shot or presumed to be a single shot. Didn't we see a time travel movie in a coffee shop which Japanese is apparently single shot? 15 minutes I know the one you mean, but I don't think that was a single shot. It was a single shot, okay. The vampire movie, yeah, was, except they had bits at the end where they cut to normal kind of yeah. movie telling. But, I mean, that was in, like, a, a derelict building. This is in a they, live street scene, this is, in, yeah. this is in a capital city of a major European country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's amazing. How, did, how the hell did they do it? I just looked up uh, Frederick Lau, who plays Summer, Sonny, was actually 26 at the time. He looked, I think... <laughs> Because if you look at his photo, his actor's photo, he doesn't look as old as he looked in the movie. I think purposefully they made made him up as a guy who's seen a few knocks and, you know, the hardship of street life kind of thing. Sure. And he's supposed to be older and wiser than Victoria. Well, he's supposed to be older, isn't he? I think she's pretty wise, let's face it. Because she came up with the cunning ploy to get out of there. Paul, you seem to be quite harrowed or affected. I was deeply disturbed by this movie. I didn't enjoy watching it. It was just... I've never done things like this, but it felt like I was having flashbacks on other people's behalves. It was, oh, well, it, no. I, didn't I mean, it. that's the clever thing about it, isn't it? Because of the nature of the way it's filmed, you are living it with Victoria, I think. It was unenjoyable, I, but entertaining. This is the difference between entertainment and enjoyment, isn't it? It was, It's a it was challenging film. fundamentally entertaining, and I, I benefited from it, but it wasn't enjoyable. There was severe ahedonia to be experienced here. As I mentioned, 1917 is a pseudo one-take movie. And it does it for reasons of narrative and keeping you engaged in the plot and stuff. But I was aware of that before I saw it, and I was slightly distracted trying to look for the cut points. (laughs) (laughs) But in this movie, first of all, there are no obvious cut points. It, It feels totally authentically like you're next to them. And it didn't occur to me to look for them anyway. I just felt naturally like I was along for the ride. You know, you could be a mate of Victoria's. Except some of the bits are quite intimate, but nonetheless, you know, you could be a mate of Victoria's watching, watching her do this. And as you say, I think there is an, a discomfort in watching Victoria do things which don't really seem like great ideas. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. What point would you have checked out then? What, what point would you have said I no? I think, like, I would definitely said to Sonny, like, I don't mind chatting with you, but can you lose your friends kind of thing? <laughs> It would have been conditional, I think. I would never have gone on with all four of them. Mm. Yeah, that seems risky, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's one movie that's come after from this guy, Rhodes. We might want to put it on our list to see where he gets... He's not done much since 2015. This guy, Sebastian... We must have taken Schumann. it out of him. Yeah. So it seems to be his great opus. Mass- tiny budget, half a million euros, and made six million in the box office. So it was a definite hit. Yeah. As you can probably tell, I'm astounded by You're the technical achievement. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I just think it's, yeah, just amazing to think of how how it could have been done. Now, so what about the conceivability of her mo- meeting them and robbing a bank within two hours? I mean, it's fiction, <laughs> isn't it? You know, 
For me, there are two issues here. It's like, if it's fiction, why try and make it so realistic and why try to do this one cut take? Or are we able to suspend disbelief? I mean, I, this could have happened over a two-year period, couldn't it? You get it over and then you roll back with them. That's conceivable. But could anybody have moved along so quickly as Victoria is? Yeah, what do you think, Richard? Well, isn't partly the story here that it is in these tiny moments, tiny windows of time that sure, enormous yeah. changes can happen? I mean, could it have happened over two weeks? N- no, because if she was given time to think about it, Victoria would probably have thought this is a crazy idea. But if she's high on MDMA, weed, uh, cocaine, it might all seem like... I think we might be led to believe that Sulla is like her first love, right? Because... She's been closeted away in Oh, of course, yes. Of course, she's a little rebel, isn't she? So she's in liminance with this, this guy who's shown her, you know, some attention and affection. And she's in a strange city. So I think it's trying to say that it's the madness of that moment that leads these events to occur. I would say... In terms of realism, I'm not quite sure I understand the business model of the criminal gang. It was a favour. No, it was just a last favour to pay back what happened in prison. The protection right. they've been afforded in prison. You know when we were talking about that, that mafia-related movie that took place in that... I mean, the boss said, you've got 10,000 euros, give it to me now, we don't have to do a job. So he knew that the guy didn't have 10,000, the boss didn't have 10,000 euros, so he said, here's a chance for you to earn 10,000. And I'm being fair... The rest of the money is yours. So it wasn't a business deal as such. It was to get Boxer out of the out of the sure. uh, the feudal bonds, the prison feudal bonds that, that he was tied in with. Okay, but I keep referencing back to the movie of the guy living in Lugano, or the, you know the the lakeside town where he took suitcases of money. Yes, and laundered them for the mafia, and he winds up going to that place where all the mafia guys are. And I made the point about who does mafia choreography and tells all these criminal bosses to stand in a certain place to look menacing. You know, who does who oh. does that? Oh, the mafia convention. It's yeah. <laughs> just next to the computer convention, <laughs> down the road from the napkins, napkins <laughs> and catering convention. It's the mafia convention. You'll see them there. Yeah. It's the same problem here. You know, who are these criminal organisations that arrange to get these four like, unknowns to rehearse a bank robbery? And I've got it all planned out on the floor. Are you saying I mean, criminality they... doesn't happen like this, Richard? How long were they waiting in that car park for those to arrive? Well, that's why there's urgency. That's why Boxer, we have to get over there now. They want us there now. Kind of they do this thing and they've taped it all out and they're going to get four people they've never, never met before and they're going to train them to do a bank robbery in like 10 minutes and then give them guns and send them out. Is that really, is that how criminal organisations I don't know. Works? In these days, sensitivity, like, you know, you know, Bill Gates stands next to Jeffrey Epstein, you know, is under a clown of suspicion. Like, I was telling one of my students that I, I knew a criminal, and now I was no. saying, oh, I need to report you to the police pool. It's like, oh my gosh. So it's like, how much, how much can you say in this day and age without acquaintances, if you know somebody who's done something bad? But from the people I know that have done these kind of things, right? Oh my God. I do know people who've done similar kind of things to this. And it is very, very hectic and very, very kind of impromptu. Yes. But they do yeah. all meet up beforehand. Do they have a rehearsal? Do they no. lay out a, a floor plan? No, I think they all meet up to make sure they're all kind of on the level with each other kind of stuff. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, the, you know, it's just, when I was much younger. Oh, no! Wait a minute. There's a third, there's a third situation that you might know about. Which I can't talk about. <laughs> so yeah, so it's just a, somebody I knew from a sports club became a major drug dealer. I didn't know this, but I did go to his parties when I was about 16, 17, 18. And he was looking to set up supplies. It doesn't matter, I can tell this now because he's been shot dead. But he was looking to set up supplies with... Happy Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> with what used to be called the Jamaican Yardies, who were operating huh. yeah. drug operations outside. They were doing a lot of the London stuff at the time and yeah they all kind of turned up his house during parties and kind of sort of checked each other out made sure you know the white guys are on the level make sure the Jamaican guys are on the level it's a bit of racial tension because they don't know each other's culture do they and how, how that kind of criminal sort of brotherhood operates across cultures kind of thing they're sniffing each other's asses kind of thing like dogs so that that stuff does happen but I'm not sure it happens in the evening kind of stuff what about you Richard I mean, you, I mean come on I mean you must have had you must have seen some of this operating We've all been down clubs in our... I mean, I think uh, when I was 
18, 19, hanging out more with school friends, thankfully for my parents' sake. Like the clubs we went down with, I'm sure, you know, plenty of times, you know, group of guys on the dance floor, one would look at you, stare at you if you stared back, then he'd just raise his jeans and show you an ankle gun kind of thing and say, come on then, if you want to. We've all been there, haven't we? It was kind of, I That's mean, a bit different, isn't it? Though? The thing is, if criminal gangs had the the gumption to get up at for a 5am meeting, chalk out an outline. Yeah, they, they'd have a proper job, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah they, surely they'd be doing better. Because <laughs> you can make, easily, you know, you can make $200, dollars a day just working an ordinary job, can't you? So, <laughs> and if you do that for a month, that's that's your 5,000 cut, isn't it? So, Paul, shall we rate the acting then? Love the acting. Really, I, I mean, the fact that they did it in three, just three, is it three takes is incredible. And they got the whole single shot. They haven't spliced the three takes together in any sort of way. Just amazing. Victoria just takes us on a roller coaster ride of emotions. Liar Costa is playing Victoria there. It's really believable. Everything that happens to her and just the way she just takes us into what she's feeling and decisions she makes. Loved it. Uh, I love the panic she had at the driving wheel at the end. Just, just so well portrayed. It's got to be a nine from me. Yeah, I agree. Look, if you're giving actors the job of not only acting their part, doing their lines, but navigating through Berlin, getting there at exactly the right time. Think about all those scenes where Sonna is bleeding, right? They've got to somehow surreptitiously get fake blood things in the right place so that he bleeds at the right moment. It's just, it's baffling that they did all of that. Brilliant. It's a tour de force of their art. So yeah, it's definitely a nine. Story and plot, possibly the weakest, because it's a bit forced, a bit driven, isn't it, that sense? Mm -hmm. From what you're saying, it maybe is not as credible as you might want it to be. Certainly exciting. What do you think? In terms of a movie and the expectation, I mean, it feels realer than most movies. In terms of movie narratives, it's highly believable. And I, I like the mechanism of bringing this together in a short time. You're saying had it been over real time periods, it wouldn't have happened anyway. What I'm saying is, if she got to know Sonny over two or three periods, and then after that she got high one evening with him, then I could believe it could happen over this two hour, three hour period. Yeah? And so, in moving reality terms, I still think it is believable. It's more about the logistics of the robbery, the fact they get away so easily. In 2015 Berlin, I don't think they would do. There's so many cams, so much CCTV around, isn't there? Just those kind of things. Doesn't make it shonky in any kind of way. Just going to score it a 7.5 for plot. But I love the resolution at the end, you know. The fact she just walks away, walks out of there. It just made sense. Yeah, I was going to go 7 for plot. Okay. I'm struggling for a third category. Well, it's a crime thriller. I mean, compared to Layer Cake, it's not a very involved crime thriller, is it? But that's the other kind of... That's what we expect from crime thrillers. We expect something tortuous, involved complicated with twists and turns. There aren't that many twists and turns in this. And in that sense, it's a very real crime thriller, I think. But crime, did it itch your seedy underbelly, Richard? Did it sp speak of a criminal criminal world? Is this the category you're going for, crime? Crime, crime and underworld. Oh. Did it atmospheric fear on these? Did it atmospheric-ize fear? Perhaps this is the least believable bit of it, so maybe I'll give it a six. But this is that's going to make the film seem less less good than it really is, I think. Crime and nightclub literature. Did it do all that late night stuff for you? Oh, as a travelogue, I thought it was very entertaining. I'll give it an eight for Berlin nightlife travelogue. Berlin underbelly, yeah, generally speaking. <laughs> I thought, you know, the late night drinker is whatever city you're in, the hum of late night traffic, the mist on the, mist on the street lamps, and then people heading for cheap beers when they've already had too much. It's a constant, I think, around the world. And you meet so many characters there, don't you? So for me, this, I thought, was a strong area. Eight also. Overall, Paul, do you recommend this? Is this a good Christmas Day family <laughs> viewing? Well, I mean, Die Hard has become the staple of Christmas viewing, hasn't it? It's become the Christmas That's viewing. right. So High time it was replaced. Yeah. High time we up the ante with something slightly more traumatic. This is traumatic, or it was for me. But nonetheless, a very, very worthwhile and enjoyable movie. I'm going to score it eight overall. I feel like I want to score it at least an eight, if not a nine. It needs to be seen at least once. It's one of the movies you should see before you die, I think. If you've been shot recently and are hiding uh, an abdominal wound, that could be in the next <laughs> half an hour, so you better get going. <laughs> right, okay. I think it is up to me to present you with some choices, Richard. Is that right? Yeah, but I've got a bit of a problem. I really want to see... 
a movie that's due out next week might be too late for next week's review. But it's that a Christmas is, movie. Well, it's not a Christmas movie. Oh. It's it's the Rebel Moon by Zack Snyder. Sci-fi blockbuster, is it? It is. Yes. When's it due out? I think it's due out next Friday. He okay. wants to have done well. That'll be for podcast listeners who get it right on the dots. That'll be tomorrow, kind of thing. Wow. Zack Snyder wants to have done Star Wars, and I think this is Zack Snyder's Star Wars, really. That's why I'm looking forward to it. Wait a minute, what else is Zack Snyder done? He did Watchmen, he did 300, and he did the Justice League movies. But who was the guy we reviewed about three months ago that wanted to do Star Wars and repeated his Star Wars movie that he actually made? Uh, that was Gareth Edwards, wasn't it? With Battle of the AI. The Creator, wasn't the it? The Creator, so what you're claiming here is a wild card. You're asking for a wild card status to choose one movie that we've I put forward, but also maybe to replace it with Rebel Moon, should that pro- prove provident. Whenever we get to see it and record it, yes. Okay, so it could be one of these three, and I'll suggest or it could be Rebel Moon that we hear next. Okay. Yes. So here are the three for you, Richard. Fourth Kind, that's about aliens. I'm only giving that because Third Kind is not available to watch. Yeah, well, we would have to do third and fourth kind if possible, wouldn't we? We can't do third kind because I can't get it on a streaming, streaming option alone. Okay, next one is Vespa. I imagine you could probably uh, steal it from YouTube in Spanish subtitles, Paul. You probably could. <laughs> in fact, I might look into that. Vespa. If I was American, I'd pronounce my R there. Vespa. Okay, it's not the Italian moped. It is some sort of weird... Sci-fi movie. Sci-fi yeah. stuff. And then Complete Break, because it's Christmas... Looks like it might be fun from from the from the swatch from the oh my gosh, having a brain fade. What do you call the small image from the thumbnail? Oh my god, from the thumbnail looks like it might be fun. Fun from the thumbnail is the Mitchells versus the Machines. So Paul, are you feeling traumatized by Victoria? Do you feel you would need a palate cleanser for your brain? Is that Not why really, you're putting yeah. a cartoon no. in the mix? No, no, is it a cartoon? This is an animation, yes. I think it's probably CGI, isn't it? But, oh. so, here's my question. What do you fancy? Do you fancy UFOs, sci-fi, or light-hearted comedy, cartoony thing? I kind of fancy third kind. I don't know if fourth kind will stand oh, up. Let's do the fourth kind, then. UFOs oh. are in the news lately. People keep saying they see them for some reason, even though they don't. So let's do the fourth kind. Okay. I presume it's about aliens. I think the fourth kind refers to alien abduction, isn't it? That's the fourth kind of encounter. Is it indeed? Yes. So there might be some anal probing, just to get a Christmas <laughs> warning there. <laughs> okay, so for 21, do join us next time. We're going to be looking at the fourth kind of anal probing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, until the next time, goodbye. Ciao for now, see you in the next one, bye. Thank you.